apparently I'm in reverse color mode today, so, you yeah. know, feeling sure. colorful, feeling bad. I got coffee, that's all that's cool. Right on, well, we should, you know, I should, I should start off with, hey, Christina. Hey, Chris. And then, How are you doing today? I'm doing great. And then tell everyone why we are switching up. So uh, those of you listening, you'll, you're hearing yet another voice of the Sausage of Science, one that has been behind the scenes uh, for almost a year now. Yeah. 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 It's, been a, it's been a while. So uh, Christina is co-host today. Christina, tell the world about you before we get to our, our guest. I am a graduate student at UW. Um, studying cost of reproduction, bone mineral density, snatty stuff like that. Loving it. A uh, longtime fan of the podcast. So super excited to be a part of helping create the sausage of the sausage of science. <laughs> right on. So, well, it's it's really cool. So for those of you listening, you know, we always, Kara and I started this podcast, but, you know, it's it, and it's a labor of love, but we like to get other folks involved. We like to train folks up in public engaged scholarship, you know, get our crew uh, more recognition, get a more um, time behind the microphone. And, uh, you know, I think it's fun, but it also gives folks uh, more opportunity to sort of learn how to shoot the shit on the fly, as it were. Not that I'm in any way, shape or form articulate, but think thankfully, Christina is also a master producer and probably won't be editing her own episode, one hopes, but... um. Oh, that puts the pressure on. I, I've been, I have to pay attention to what I say. Oh, no. Yeah. The only thing that, as you guys pointed out to us, it is useful when you pause between words so that you can edit out the, uh, wonder what your, uh, is going to be. So we learned at Reno when we were all sitting together that, that we all have distinctive us and that mm-hmm. you don't even have to listen to us. You can just see it on the profile. Yeah. Just looking at the sound wave. It's, uh usually a hedgehog or uh you know sometimes it's a tennis racket on its that's, side that's right who's the hedgehog uh kara's usually the hedgehog but malika's and kara's are very similar so right right and am i the tennis racket on its side it depends it okay. depends on whether you're really excitable that day okay yeah <laughs> and i was thinking oh we should we should grab our our sound wave and use it as our like facebook id anyway we wonder what yours is going to look like but we are here today to actually talk to another grad student, not from UW. Actually, that's that's our next episode. But we're going to be talking to Sophia Schreier from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She is a PhD student under the guidance of our good friend um, and colleague, Lynette Sievert, who is, and she's studying grandmotherhood. In addition, when, and she's had to do a toggle. So she started off studying grandmotherhood. In the Ukraine, she is Ukrainian. Um, she was interested in the variation in caretaking behaviors and the impact of child rearing on both grand maternal and children's health and well-being. But with the outbreak of war, she has toggled to studying menopause, hot flashes, and brown fat in the Massachusetts area. And we are going to ask her about both of those studies. I'm very excited about this. I love the idea of grandmothering, love the idea of maternal support in every way possible. So That's right, because you, you're you studying aging as well. So this this is uh, yeah. this is right down your your alley. What did you think of the, the chapter? Yeah, tons of questions. I, I love uh, anything that involves looking at something from as many different angles as possible. The biocultural approach is really so, so important. You know, looking at something just from a sociocultural standpoint or just from a biological standpoint, those two types of research really shouldn't be happening in a vacuum separate from one another. Yeah. 
So I want to take a minute. This will be a little bit delayed, but the day we're recording is the day after Tina Turner passed. And I want to take a moment mm-hmm. because when I think about aging, right, we, we, we have these almost this binary of like successful aging and Tina Turner sort of epitomized that in many ways of just being this mm-hmm. complete bad ass. And then we have this worry about falling apart. And so she lived a full rich life and 83 is not young but to me it seems young uh, as i approach i'm middle-aged so that seems young to me and then it seems young for her and so what what grabs me in this chapter is how much of the granularity of age has not even been addressed at all not even looked at like we get really granular i'm thinking about the next interview we do where it's like we're looking at a single hormone during a single week in like gestation, yeah. right? And then we get to old age and we're like, yeah, it's old age, 20, 30 years span, nothing's happening then, you know? But, you know, there's still transitions that happen as someone going through those transitions. I shake my old man. Well, and, the, the, <laughs> and the monolith, I think that aging is frequently treated as, um, particularly when, you know, women are talking to their doctors and they're, experiences are sort of lumped into this big box of like, well, that's just aging. And, you know, I don't think we really have a good idea what aging is supposed to look like. And what we do know, I think indicates pretty strongly that it's not a singular experience that everyone experiences the same way. And so, you know, I think that's what I really like about Sophia's uh, approach in the BAT poster is, is really focusing on talking to women about their symptoms and the importance of the differences in those symptoms and what that might mean biologically for for aging so um, i I love that about this type of work i agree and she is now in the waiting room so let's bring her in didn't even have to uh, poke me to remind me what i'm doing (laughs) look at those sunflowers wonder where that is hello 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 where are those beautiful sunflowers yeah well take a wild guess chris (laughs) that's ukrainian sunflowers damn that explains why I cannot get them to uh, grow around here. <laughs> yeah, they do really well in Ukraine. It's our national flower. Oh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for welcome, having me. Sophia. And you get the honor of breaking Christina in. I'll, I'll just say, like, it's, it's a real pleasure. It's been really nice getting to know you over the past few years. So I'm really happy you came on the podcast. And I want to say congratulations on your poster award this year. That was one of the reasons that, you know, we Thank went ahead and, and invited you. I mean, it's a no-brainer for a lot of reasons. Your research is interesting. You're an interesting person. And that makes a compelling podcast interview. But rather, I, I've already been talking a lot. And Christina, I'm going to let you ask the first question. We always start the podcast talking about how the sausage of the scientist is made. And I would like to hear about how you came to be settled on the research that you're settled on, studying where you're studying and generally doing what you're doing. Yeah. So um, I guess I've always been really interested in the big questions about the human condition. Why are we here? What are we doing? What makes us human? Since I was a kid and um, one time in early college, I was traveling on a plane actually to Ukraine and um, there was a documentary playing and it was The Cave of Forgotten Dreams by Werner Herzog. I was so fascinated with, you know, paleo history and that's kind of how I started taking anthropology classes. And then, 
yeah, I became interested, especially in women's roles in evolution, which kind of transformed into studying gender roles and women's health. And I became really interested in the grandmother hypothesis by Kristen Hawkes. Um, and that was my honors thesis in undergrad. And yeah, and now I'm here. <laughs> So uh, that we mentioned it with your uh, your intro, your your sunflowers. You're from Ukraine. You're here. Uh, the elephant in the room is, you know, tell us about your your family. How are they doing? How did you get from the Ukraine to the United States? Just a little bit about that before we jump into research, because it's the world cares and is, is paying attention, and we don't want them to stop. So, yeah, thank you. I mean, it's definitely been um, a tough year and a half. I came as a kid. So I was 11 years old. And so I went to middle school and high school in the US. Um, I came with my mom, but my dad is still in Ukraine. My aunts and uncles are in Ukraine. Um, so we're just constantly keeping touch. Everyone is staying safe. So far, my dad moved away from Kharkiv, which is my home city on the Eastern Front. And he's now staying in a rural area just, just to be safer. So everyone is doing well just kind of trucking on all of the, you know, expats in the US are doing what they can. So I've done a fair share of fundraising. And so yeah, I mean, it's been an intense year, but fingers crossed things are going to settle down soon. Um, no end in sight yet, but we'll we'll see. So the, the chapter that you sent us is actually based on research that was conducted uh, in Ukraine. And I know that you've had to toggle. We'll, we'll get to that. So why don't you tell us about how this, this chapter on aging came about, who your co-author is. And we already yelled at our other producer who also has a chapter in this <laughs> book. The chapter is called Aging in Child Care, a Biocultural Approach to Grandmothering in Ukraine. And it's in a volume called Anthropological Perspectives on Aging, edited by Brittany Howell and Ryan Herod, out. I think it's out. It was out in February, University of Florida yeah. Press. Yep. So officially how, out. How did that come about? And um, who is your co-author? This was actually my master's thesis. So I did field work in Ukraine in 2019. I interviewed over 60 grandmothers in urban, suburban, and rural environments in Ukraine. Um, and I was really interested in grandmotherhood in Ukraine and um, how being really active in childcare influences women's health and well-being. And I was interested in kind of differences between maternal and paternal grandmothers. When I started doing the work, I started asking bigger questions. So why are grandmothers so active in Ukraine. I mean, it is much more prevalent for grandmothers to be raising grandchildren in Eastern Europe than it is in the US. I didn't really know why. Grandmothers also were talking about these really strict kind of expectations that they had for grandmotherhood. I didn't really know why. Um, and so I took this cultural anthropology class with Dr. Julie Hemond, who's my co-author on this chapter, and it was called Post-Socialist Perspectives. And so uh, Dr. Hemond is a cultural anthropologist and an ethnographer who studies post-socialism in Russia and um, feminist and gender roles narratives in um, post-socialist states. And so she was really the perfect person to kind of help me and guide me um, in contextualizing my pretty, you know, traditionally biological grandmother hypothesis work. And so this chapter is kind of a combination of both of our perspectives. 
So in your chapter, and, and actually just now you're talking about gender roles and paternal grandmothers and maternal grandmothers, and I, you know most of our listeners really don't have any idea what grandmotherhood is, is like or has been like in the Ukraine. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like and, and also how maybe shifting gender roles over time have, have really shaped those? Yeah, so this is a very complicated story, and I go into it in much greater depth in the book chapter. But basically, through socialism in Eastern Europe, um, you have these two kind of completely contradictory narratives on gender roles. So one is that women are meant to care for the household and mind the children, and men are supposed to be the breadwinners and the leaders. So kind of very traditional beliefs. And at the very same time, the socialist state, you know, tries turning that upside down and necessitates women's participation in the workforce and takes the official stance on women's equality. However, instead of changing the traditional patriarchal views for the better, basically what ends up happening is that women are expected to fully participate in the workforce and fully take care of the household and children. And because the state puts zero emphasis on fatherhood or men's roles in the house, um, men were not really picking up any of that house labor. And simultaneously, men who really deeply believed that they're they're meant to be breadwinners and kind of the leaders of the family actually found themselves in an environment where women were not actually reliant on them at all um, because they can now rely on the socialist state and this kind of contradictory dynamic coupled with world war ii that almost completely destroyed the male population in ussr uh, very high rates of alcoholism among men and very favorable divorce laws um, actually led to a crazy high level of absent men. And so who do women turn to when they need help? They turn to their mothers. Uh, so through socialism and then through the economic upheavals of post-socialism, grandmothers became secondary caretakers of the household. And the Traditional arrangement is that maternal grandmothers take care of the household and help out as much as they can. And then the mothers kind of become the breadwinners. And of course, this varies a lot, but there is definitely kind of a strong sense of what the grandmother role is. Wow. That blows my mind a little bit here. So um, the next question is related to sort of the activities you outline maternal and paternal activities. I'm just sort of reeling thinking about like all these generations of males who are like, they've basically been through buying into this model cut off from their own sort of their family. Like the mother is able to make earn a living and depend on the social estate and divorce is easy. Like, oh man, that is uh, a really gnarly negative feedback loop. So you describe different types of activities that maternal and paternal grandmothers engage in with their grandkids, which, you know, just jumps out at me from certain theoretical perspectives. I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit and like what what is going on on the ground and and then maybe tell us what you think is happening. Can we take anything away from that? If you're asking specifically about the gender of the grandchildren, um, I actually didn't find any differences in activities um, that's dependent on the gender of the child at all, which I thought was really interesting. Um, not when I looked at sports or encouragement of art or anything like that. But I wrote in the chapter that 
uh, maternal and paternal grandmothers had very different approaches to childcare. So paternal grandmothers really encouraged sports and exercise and they played ball together. Um, and maternal grandmothers were much more emphasizing educational activities and like reading, taking your child to the art museum. Um, and so there's that kind of a gender difference between maternal and paternal grandmothers based on what child they raised. But those differences disappeared in the grandchildren. So paternal grandmothers weren't more likely to encourage sports in a grandson than they were in a granddaughter and vice versa for the maternal grandmothers. And I thought that that was really fascinating because these gender norms that they taught their children actually kind of melted away when they started teaching their grandchildren. I thought that was really fascinating. Do you have any idea why that might be or what's what is spurring that on? It just seems like such an interesting environment where, you know, you might expect there are such hardened gender roles and, and we would expect stereotypically certain activities to be associated with those gender roles. And you're saying that's not the case at all. It's it's not dependent at all on the gender of the, the grandchild, but the gender of the parent that the grandparent is related to. Do you have any thoughts on why why that could be? Yeah, so I think there's two different things going on. So one is that during socialism, um, USSR as a policymaker had a lot to say for what health meant and what a child should be doing. And a lot of that, because it was coming from the state, was not rooted in general. So every child should do sports, every child should go to museums, every child should read. And so that is embedded in them a little bit. But also, grandmothers talked to me a lot about having a very different relationship with their grandchildren than they did with their children. So they would say something like, when you're raising your children, you don't really have time for them. You don't have time to listen to them. You don't have time to really pay attention to them in a deep way. With my grandchildren, uh, we have a really comfortable relationship. We don't fight. They see me, um, they would say this a lot, they see me as a pillow and a blanket. So kind of like a sanctuary. And so they have kind of, I think, a less tense relationship with their grandchildren. I think that kind of contributes to that as well. Yeah. Were, were you going to continue this research for your dissertation? Was that the plan? Yeah. So I was definitely going to expand and look at grandmothers in Ukraine. And I was actually in the middle of writing my candidacy when the war started. It's such a rich, a rich study. Is there, can we expect to see more from, from what you were able to do? Or do you plan to go back and, and pick this up again? Well, I'm definitely hoping to go back in the future, but I'm currently submitting a publication looking closer at the maternal and paternal grandmother differences because I actually have grandchild-centered data. So for each grandchild, how much time they spent with their maternal grandmother and how much time they spent with their paternal grandmother, um, which is kind of rare in these studies. And I also have really interesting religiosity data. So um, grandmothers kind of centering spiritual beliefs and how they pass it on to their grandchildren, how often they go to church, community-based um, data that I'm really excited about. And also really interesting conversation data based on challenges of being a grandmother, what they what their relationships are like with their own children and and how that influences their well-being and their health. So stay tuned for that. 
I'm so excited to hear you talk about the, the spiritual data that you've been able to get. And, and I, I cannot wait <laughs> to read about that. That was one of the questions that I was interested in is how that can play a role. And I more on that later kind of a situation. But I want to get back to what you did in this chapter, because you did some really interesting work here. You So you compared participation in childcare, um, the, the grandparents' participation, the whole host of factors. So energy level, grip strength, depression, hypertension. You've got data on their, their perceived loneliness. What, what did you find? I found that grandmothers who have um, lower participation in childcare ended up having lower grip strength, higher risk of depression, higher blood pressure, and higher loneliness scores. And they also had a lower energy level. And I I call this bodrost. So energy level is not a great way to translate it. But in the cultural context, uh, when we talk about energy levels, we're actually talking about depression and anxiety, because those words are kind of unfamiliar in our cultural context. But this concept of energy level, how upbeat you feel, how much energy you have, how much joy you feel, that kind of reflects overall mental health. And that's what we call bodrest. There's not a great English word for that. But yeah, so I did find that grandmothers that do lower levels of childcare have lower levels of bodrest. That's super interesting. Uh, and it and it really articulates well with wh- what you're doing now, right? Because similarly, when we talked to Lynette, your advisor, about her research on hot flashes and night sweats in Mexico, she similarly expressed like certain terms just lose meaning in certain places. And other cultures just have different concepts of some of these these things. So you got an award for your poster called Stress Increases the Risk of Night Sweats, but Not Hot Flashes in Menopausal Women. So congratulations again on that. Thank Um, you. So I wonder if you could, we'll just jump to that. Tell us, one, I want to know how Dan Brown's involved because he's in Hawaii (laughs) and and you have brown fat on there. So we wondered like, what's what's going on with that study in general? And then we'll drill down on, on what you presented on. Lynette Siever out of UMass Amherst, my advisor, um, and Dan Brown are co-PIs on this large NSF study. We actually just wrapped up the study this month. So we're going to have some really exciting results, hopefully, at the next HBAs. So Lynette is menopause hot flashes expert, and Dan is our brown fat expert. And together, they had this question of like, well, if brown fat is this tissue that creates heat, in your chest, does more brown fat also mean more hot flashes? And no one has asked that before. So that's kind of the main question of that whole research study. And of course, we have much more data than just that. But that's the main point. And I've been the project coordinator on that study since I started grad school. So for the past four years, I've recruited every single participant. I do um, half of the data collection, Lynette and I kind of take turns. And I'll also be using that data for my dissertation because I had to toggle. <laughs> so that's kind of the the study overall. We have 270 women in Western Massachusetts. We have their overall health data and um, brown fat data, menopause questionnaires, and it's, it's a lot of a lot of good stuff. So as I sort of started talking to women and recruiting for the study, that was my job as I was simultaneously working on my grandmother stuff. Um, They kept talking to me about 
night sweats and how terrible night sweats are. I, you know, they would say things like I get an average of three hours of sleep per night. In the middle of the night, I have to wake up and change the sheets because my sweat soaked the sheets. I can't sleep next to my husband anymore. And so they would definitely complain about hot flashes, but it really seemed like night sweats were much more disturbing to their quality of life. And so I'm kind of going through this study and collecting all of these mental notes from all of these conversations with all of these women. And when it's time for me to toggle away from the grandmother research, I go and I look at night sweats and I'm really curious in them. And what I find is that not anyone to my knowledge, has ever considered night sweats by themselves. Um, So what happens is in menopause research, when we look at hot flashes and night sweats, either only look at hot flashes or we put them together into one symptom called vasomotor symptoms. And to my knowledge, no one has really asked, are they different? Because women tell me that they are, but we don't really know. It seems like they feel them in different ways. They impact their lives in different ways. And yet we haven't looked at them as potentially two separate phenomena. So for my dissertation and for this poster I did for HBA, I'm really asking the question, are hot flashes and night sweats two different things? Are night sweats just a hot flash that is trapped under a blanket? We have no idea. So that's that's where I am with that. <laughs> so one of the things I really love about, about your work is this emphasis on how important it is to have a, a culturally specific language when we're asking people about their symptoms, when, particularly when we're asking you know, women who are notoriously um, maybe sort of put into a box in terms of symptoms or, or that these symptoms tend to be overly simplified in the way that they're discussed and little differences, which could be really meaningful between people can, can often be ignored or minimized. And you, you really seem to be moving in the opposite direction where the importance of distinguishing differences in symptoms and differences in the way people describe or think about or talk about symptoms um, that in biomedicine are, are very rigid, have very rigid definitions. Are there other symptoms in aging, for example, that you think really need to be picked apart a little bit more, um, more clear distinctions made surrounding aging that you'd be interested in looking into? I mean, I think there is... There's a lot in women's health in general. Something that I'm really interested in continuing as I finish up my PhD and move on to the next step is actually looking at libido changes. When we talk to women going through menopause, if we're just doing a survey, it's usually like, did you experience changes in libido or is there a decrease in your sex drive? And it's just kind of like a checkbox. And I have the immense privilege of actually having conversations with women about it. And what they say is, yeah, absolutely not interested anymore. I'm done. (laughs) It's over. And then another woman would come in and say, yeah, there's changes in my libido. It is the highest it's ever been in my life. And my husband says to me, where the hell was this in our 20s? And so, (laughs) you know, there's all of these kind of contradictions in how women go through menopause. And, you know, if we're just kind of saying, did your libido change? Yes or no? We're kind of just assuming that it decreased. But the story is much more complicated. And we don't really understand why some women experience it one way and other women experience it a different way. And I think that's really worth exploring. So that's kind of the main thing that comes to mind because I spend a lot of time thinking about that. But I'm sure there's many, many more. I have a similar, I have a question for both of you because you both study aging. You're both, you're both young people, right? 
when I was young, I was, and I started grad school, I had triplets. So I was interested in reproductive health. And now I'm older and I'm interested in uh, aging, but you're both young and you're interested in aging. So um, I wonder why. Hmm. I think that's a great question. And it's also something that I think about because when I, you know, when I talk to a lot of women with menopause and, you know, I, I do presentations on menopause work and I do things like this, I do feel a bit presumptuous. Like, who am I to describe these experiences that I don't actually have? But to be honest, I just think it's really important and not done enough and someone needs to do it. Um, <laughs> so I don't want to wait until I'm 50 to do this work. Um, yeah, it just stuck out to me as a vacuum. That I, needs to be filled. I applaud that, by the way. I'm not. I'm not saying stay in your lane by any stretch of oh, the yeah. imagination. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying this is this is wonderful. What about you, Christina? Um, I mean, my my aging research is really about what is happening in your bones. I mean, you have this really complex organ inside of you, more or less, that can tell us so much about what your life was like and experiences you had. Um, and so. I mean, aging is inevitable, right? I mean, ideally, <laughs> aging is inevitable, right? We always say it's better than the alternative. And so it's going to happen to us. You know, isn't it fascinating to have a better understanding of what is happening in our youth or middle age that could be impacting the way we're experiencing aging and what it feels like when we're older? I mean, I'm increasingly aware of my own mortality. And so when I think about, you know, what's it going to be like when I'm in my 50s, in my 60s, as I get older? And I think symptoms in general of aging, or particularly for women, are so frequently dismissed and, and minimized. And I, I like the idea of really opening the book on that and, and digging through the chapters and figuring out exactly what the details are. Um, but I want to ask a question, and this isn't one that we that we prepped you for, so feel free to, <laughs> to cut this if you don't want to answer. But I'm really interested in what, you know, we're talking about how you're here and your family is back in Ukraine and this idea of grandmothering being such a central role for the upbringing of a lot of people. What has that been like for you in terms of your experience with grandmothering? And is that something that you feel comfortable speaking? I'm actually really lucky because my grandmother came to us to the US very quickly after we immigrated to the US. So my mom was in dental school when I was born, and both of my grandmothers raised me. And then when you come to the US, you have to go to medical and dental school over again. So my mom went to dental school here as well. And my grandmother came and she raised me and my little sister here. And so she has continually stepped up to her role. So I'm really grateful for that. It's really good to have her here. It would be very difficult for me if she was still in Ukraine and I, I were here for sure. But of course, it's it's really hard being away from my family, it's really hard not to visit. Because of COVID and the war, my husband has never met my dad. And my dad actually turned 59 on the day that the war started, February 24th, which means that he's not allowed out of the country. And he just turned 60 this February, which means he can now cross borders. Um, he definitely does not want to leave Ukraine. He's staying true. Um, I tried to convince him to come here. He's like, uh-uh, this is my country. I'm staying here. Um, but we'll actually try to meet up somewhere in Europe next year to see each other for the first time in, in many years. So that's some good news to look forward to. That's really sweet. And I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, 
as you're describing your grandparents, I started thinking about my grandmothers and started getting a little teary thinking about, you know, our connections with our our family. My One of my grandmothers lived to 100 and I did not become a anthropologist till she'd already started getting dementia. And I really, really wish I could go and, and talk to her again and uh, go back and, and sort of, you know, some of the experiences that they've had wars and, and we haven't necessarily had, right? We're, we're living through things of our own now, but to, to reach back and ask about how some of those experiences were is, is something that you can't, um, you can't get it back once you've lost it. So we, we appreciate having you on. We have one more question for you, right? Oh yeah. This is our, uh, I, I expect a lot from you because I've seen you in action <laughs> at HBA. You're very charismatic. So at the next HBA, we're going to try to bring back, they used to do a talent show. We're going to try to bring it back. Um, we heard next door AABA doing their improv while we were having our thing. So we can't let them show us up. So what talent will you be performing for us at, at the HBA meetings next year? This is a great question. Um, so I am a classically trained violinist and pianist since I was five years old, but I have been working on a juggling routine. Um, so maybe I will do a juggling routine. Juggling while playing piano or violin. Exactly. I was thinking of doing like a little work-life balance allegory as I'm juggling. This pin is up in the air represents not answering emails on the weekends and this pin up in the air represents getting back to your students on time can these pins stay up in the air simultaneously or will they all crash down we'll find I out love, i love that uh, I, I would buy tickets for that in a heartbeat uh-huh. sign me up when when can we get there <laughs> um so we'll see that is so great that's my favorite. Uh, you beat, uh, no offense to Karen Rosenberg, it beats parallel parking and it also beats my gardening. So uh, well done. <laughs> uh, Sophia, it's been lovely having you on. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you so much for yeah, inviting me. This is such a great pleasure. And thank you so much for the work that you do. This is such a fantastic podcast and such a great way for us to spread our science, the sausage of our science. That's right. Speaking of which, how can folks find you on the interwebs if you want to be found? I think you're on Twitter, oh, yeah? I am on Twitter. You can find me at Sophia, S-O-F-I-Y-A underscore Schreier. S-H-R-E-Y-E-R. And I definitely need more followers. So please follow me. You can find me at Chris underscore L-Y and uh, Human Bio Association at Humbio Asos. What about you, Christina? Are you found anywhere on the internets? I can be found on my email. I'm not cool enough for the Twitter. And that is C Gildy, G-I-L-D-E-E at uw.edu. Weren't you on Facebook for a minute? I like to keep my Facebook life uh, rather separate from everybody else. So you have, gotcha, yeah, <laughs> right. Boundaries, boundaries, boundaries are healthy. All right, everyone, thank you all, and uh, we'll talk at you soon. Thank you. Thanks, Sophia.